Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and we are uh, working our way through the book of Job. And so today is, I think, episode 73 in the entire podcast, but it's the third in our uh, in our study of Job. In the first segment, we saw Job's very first test, where he makes the statement, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be blessed forever. And, and we talked about the fact that that is the defining misunderstanding on Job's part, because while we saw the narrative of who really hit Job and know that it was Satan, Job doesn't know that. He thinks it's God who's hit him. And so he tries to maintain his faith, even though something bad has happened to him. That's not unlike the way that you and I often try to cope with with negativity, with hardship, with suffering. He doesn't buckle. He, He blinks, but he doesn't buckle. And so the devil's allowed to test him a second time. It's, it's not like it wasn't bad enough the first time. God lets the devil have at him a second time. And this time, the devil takes his health. And, and Job goes out and sits on the trash heap, covered in sores from head to toe, scraping his wounds with a broken piece of pottery to, to take the pressure out of him, to bust the pustules open and take the pressure out. And then covering himself with ashes from the trash heap to seal uh, the the wounds from the from the air and to soak up the pus. It's pretty nasty, right? And his his wife comes out and says, "Why don't you just curse God and die?" Whew! There's a helper. So Job is sitting out there. His wife is encouraging him to die. He's trying not to say bad things about about God. Although he did say to his wife, "We take the good things from God." Shouldn't we also take the bad? Uh, Again, he thinks God is the one that hit him. He thinks God's the one who hands out bad things. And that's the primary misunderstanding that the book of Job addresses. You'll get accustomed to it as we go through the book. But almost every statement that Job makes is a test for you and I to look at and say, is that who God is or is it not? And by the time we get through the book, you'll pretty well understand the nature of God. That's why it exists in the Bible, is to teach us about the real nature of God. But now we're in chapter 2, verse 11, and Job has friends. Thank the Lord for friends when we suffer, right? Job has three friends who care enough to travel a great distance because they've heard of his hardship, and they come to be with him. This is Job chapter 2, verse 11. Three of Job's friends heard of all the trouble that had fallen on him. They each traveled from their own country, Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, and Zophar from Namath. They joined together on the road to come see Job and keep uh, keep him company and comfort him. When they first caught sight of him, they could not believe their eyes. They hardly recognized him. They cried out in lament, ripped their robes, and dumped dirt and ashes on their own heads as a sign of participating in his grief. 
Then they sat with him there on the ground in the trash heap. Seven days and nights they sat there without saying a word. They could see how rotten he felt, how deeply he was suffering. Then Job broke the silence. He spoke up and cursed his own fate. Obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let let it be a black hole in space. Oh, may God above forget it ever happened and I ever existed. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into pure nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing curse that day. Unleash the sea beast, the Leviathan on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes, never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb into a life of so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth? My first breath out of the womb, my last. Why were there arms to rock me and breasts to feed me? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain, in the company of kings and statesmen in their royal ruins, or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I stillborn and buried immediately with all the babies who never saw light? Where the wicked no longer trouble anyone and bone-weary people get a long-deserved rest. Prisoners sleep undisturbed, never again to wake up to the bark of all the guards. The small and the great are equals in that place, and slaves are free from their masters. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable, and why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who can't imagine anything better than death, who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper, then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed. There will be no rest for me ever, for death has invaded my life. Well, Job, that's uh, that's quite a tirade there, isn't it? And you and I understand where it comes from, right? We understand that, that this is the language of a person who's depressed, isn't it? The scene starts so well. Job has friends. I mean, that's a great revelation. And, and when they're first introduced, we think, oh, good, here comes help. Job has friends. Friends are exactly what you need in this kind of situation. And his friends are wise. They don't come with a bunch of dumb stuff. Hey, Job, you okay? Hey, buddy, you doing all right? I had a good friend who lost his mother one time. And he was a leader in the church and, and just a great guy. And and I came to him in that loss and I said, I'm really sorry. If I can do anything, I'm right here. 
You ask, and if it's within my power, it's yours. And we sat there for a minute, and he looked at me and he said, Kevin, thank you. I said, well, I haven't done anything yet. He said, no, you haven't. But what you didn't do is as important. You didn't ask me if I was okay. I said, well, people mean well. He said, I know, but if one more person asks me if I'm okay, I'm going to throw up on their shoes. <laughs> I understand what he was saying. A lot of times when we're sick or when we're grieved, people who mean well say the stupidest stuff to us. When it would have been better if they had just come and said, I came because I love you. And then sat down and shut up right? Job's friends are wise. They come, they see the trouble that he's in, they see his grief, they they tear their own clothes as though it were them who'd lost someone. That's what you do in Jewish culture of that time. If, if, you, if you were grieving, you tore your clothing to show it. They tear their clothes as though they've lost someone. They throw dirt and ashes on their own heads to show that they're grieving, and they sit down on the dump pile with Job. And they don't say a word for seven days and seven nights. Wow. Um, those are real friends who will sit there and skip meals with you for a week so that they can be with you as you grieve. I can pretty much bet you Job's wife isn't bringing them sandwiches. So it starts so well and so wise. And then Job opens his mouth. <laughs> Poor Job. I mean, most of us have been here, right? Why was I ever born? What's the purpose of life like this? If I have to live it without my kids, without my grandkids... What's the purpose? And, and most of his lament here, most of his complaint is, is just the complaint of a very hurt, even depressed person. And it looks very familiar if you know anything about depression, right? Oh, if the day that I was born had never happened. Blot it off the calendar. Take it out of the universe. Make it so I never existed. Make it so I died when I was born and and I never had to suffer any of this. I could I could be at peace right now. I could be in heaven resting with those who also were never born. Where there are kings and princes and everyone else who's ever gone before and died and now rests in peace. I could be in peace instead of sitting here on the trash heap mourning the loss of my entire family and everything I ever had. Oh, why didn't I just die? Why did I ever have to exist at all? But then he starts in on God. And at that point, you and I are supposed to say, oh, wait, what's he saying about God? Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who can't imagine anything better than death. Why count the day of their death and who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life? 
What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense? When God blocks all the roads to meaning. See what he's doing? Hello. Time for the chorus. <laughs> Job. No. That's not what God's doing here. Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Um, so that they have light? <laughs> so that they can see light in the midst of all the dark and misery? Right? Why does God bother keeping bitter people alive? To give them time to work through their bitterness and not be bitter anymore? So that they'll grow and mature and be better eternal citizens having gone through hardship and suffering because he's merciful and he doesn't just wipe people out for fun or even to spare them pain. That's not how God works. Job should know this. You and I know this. And when he starts to say these things, again, we're supposed to say, whoops, Job, no. That stuff before that you said in your depression, we get that. It hurts really bad. And there are times that each of us says, why am I here? I can't tell you how many senior adults I've sat with who had a few months yet to live or weeks. And they said, Pastor, I don't know why God leaves me here. I just want to go home. I get that. But, but when he starts to blame God, when he starts to accuse God, now he's off the farm, right? What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense? Because God is blocking all the roads to meaning. But he's not. Job, look around. Look at the evidence of what's happened to you. Does this look like God to you? Is this who your God is? Really? And you, and you learn something here that we missed at the very beginning, that we should have caught from the outset, that every time his kids had a party, Job went out the next morning really early and made a sacrifice for every one of his children, seven boys and three girls. He sacrificed 10 different animals to cover any sin that they might have committed because Job in his heart believed that God was keeping score believed that if he didn't do that, there was a chance that God might snap one of his kids off the face of the earth. He, in his heart, believed that God was that petty. Right? Or he wouldn't have gone to that effort. You begin to see that Job's a great guy, but he doesn't understand his God very well. And then he represents all of us instantly. People trying to serve God, people trying to do God's will, people trying to help accomplish God's purpose with, with this weird understanding of the God who keeps score, of the God who strikes us for whatever small disobedience we might do or large disobedience, the God who might zap us with lightning if we dare to step out of the right path, whatever the right path is, because sometimes we don't have a right path. We have to choose the better of the bad paths, right? God is not like that. And yet, from Job's day to this day, I can show you Christians all along the way 
who believed in their heart that God was the evil scorekeeper who would zap you if you got out of line. He's never been that way. In the New Testament, Jesus tells a story about a master who leaves to go to a far country and he puts three of his servants in control of his stuff. And one gets the bulk of his stuff and another one gets a pretty good share of his stuff and the third servant gets one piece of the master's estate. One piece, one little piece. And when he comes back, kind of unannounced, he calls them together and says, hey, bring the stuff I gave you and what you made with it. And the first one who had the bulk of it says, well, you gave me this much and I doubled it. Here it all is for you. And the master said, very well done. You've been faithful with a little. Here, take it all back and manage the whole set now. And the guy who had a significant piece of the estate comes back and and he's got what what the master gave him and that much more. He says, look, you gave me a pretty good chunk and I've doubled it. Here, it's yours. And the master says, no, you've been faithful with a little bit here. So now you take it all and manage this much of it. And then here comes the sad dude that only had one little piece of the estate, one little chunk. And and he's dug it up and he brings it back. And he says, here's what you gave me. It's yours. You have it back. The master says, wait, you didn't earn anything on it? And the servant says, no, because I knew you were a wicked master who, so, who, who gathers where he hasn't scattered seed and reaps where he never sowed. And so I buried this chunk in the ground so that you could have it back when you returned. It isn't his, it isn't his failure to produce a return on the investment that really bothers the master. And it's not the point of that story. The point of the story is he doesn't know the master. Look how he treated the first two. Whatever they returned, he added it to the original the original principle and handed it all back to him and said, you're faithful with that, now manage more. He doesn't reap, he doesn't take. It was all his to begin with. If he took it back, he wasn't reaping or sowing or, or harvesting anything that wasn't his own, right? It's all his anyway. So if he took it all back, it would be well within his rights. That was their assignment as his servants. But the third guy, he doesn't even know the master. And he betrays that when he says, I knew you were a wicked master. But he's not. There's nothing in the story to indicate that that's the nature of the master. That's the point of that parable, not how much he makes with his talent. The the point of that story isn't use it or lose it. The point of that story is the nature of the master. Just as the point of the story of Job is the nature of God. Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper. I leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered. My peace destroyed. No rest for me ever because death has invaded my life. Well, now he's back to the truth. It wasn't God who did this. Death has invaded his life. And where does death come from? If Job was just able to see a little bit better through the fog of his grief, I think he'd get back to the right place. But he's clouded. And Eliphaz is about to start talking. 
And and again, you and I are going to put our cat whiskers up and Eliphaz is going to get a whole bunch of things right. These guys really are wise. They have 90% of God right. And they all have about 10% of God wrong. And they have about 10% of Job wrong too. And so the wrong in this story just kind of continues to snowball. And it and it offends Job, and it offends each of them, and it offends God. And so in the end, the solution has to be forgiveness because there's not going to be any justice that will that will make it all right. See? So hang with me through the rest of the story and understand that. There are times in all of our lives where we suffer pretty pretty stiffly. The, the wave beats against us really hard. The storm rages against us overwhelmingly. There are times in each of our lives when the loss is almost more than we can bear. In those times... I pray that God cuts through the fog of our own grief and our despair because the heart really can despair. Job is nearly suicidal here. Oh, I wish I'd never been born. Oh, Lord, why did you leave me on this earth? My my life is worth nothing. I mean, that's really close to the edge, isn't it? And yet he hangs on. And I pray that when we go through those things, Despair won't overwhelm us. That we'll understand that God does show light to the one in the darkness. That God does give hope to the one in the in the pit of despair. And I pray that you and I can share that truth with our friends who are grieving or despairing. Because that's what they need most. Not our counsel. Not our wise words. Our presence and the assurance that we're there and there will be light and there will be a day. The night will will pass. If you've recently been through grief, and a lot of us have with this pandemic thing, a lot of us have lost loved ones in the last couple of years. I want you to know it is God who gives hope. It is God who gives light. It is God who gives. It is the enemy that takes away. Lay the blame where it belongs. Lay the glory where it belongs. And believe that tomorrow the sun's going to come up again.